0: Today I wanted to uh, speak to you about a very interesting subject, and this will be the first of two parts. I need to put it in the front end of the year because I know what our culture throws at us, what this world throws at us, and how how the devil attempts to tempt us to veer off of the path, walk away from God's will for our lives. So that's why we have so far covered a few very important subjects in the beginning of the year, including the gospel, as Dave Zadok preached it and explained it to us and articulated it to us. It is so important for us to understand that this is the way God works. (laughs) I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to save. And without the gospel, there is no ministry. So today I wanted to launch into this seemingly secular but extremely sacred subject of the theology and philosophy of work, the theology and philosophy of work. As we look at the culture today, we realize that work has been demonized, it's been trivialized, it's been seen as the evil necessity that we have to give ourselves to and we do The biggest part of our lives, go into our careers. And for us to not understand what the Bible says about it is to walk in darkness regarding the biggest part of what we do, work. So I want to speak to you about the theology and the philosophy of, of work and how we ought to view our secular jobs and our secular careers in the light of God's will, in the light of God's will. So the question is, how did the biblical authors view secular work? What did they make of it? What was their attitude towards it? How did the reformers back in 1517, starting then, how did they view the idea of a secular career path? What do we do with this? Did they like did they, like some, see work as a necessary evil? Did they, like some today, only work because they had bills to pay? Did they only work because it allowed them to live comfortably? And was there such a thing as government support? And was there such a thing as universal income? Would they have given themselves to those kind of things? Question is do we work solely for the pure purpose of one day retiring comfortably? Do we work hard for the sole purpose of one day returning or retiring early in life? Right now in Europe, I think it's all the way down to 55. Years of age, is now retirement. So it's important for us to look at this because this is one of the biggest things we give our lives to and will be one of the biggest things we give our lives to in 2022. So let's look at how the theology of work came about because there is such a theology. Have you ever heard of that? The theology of work? Anybody heard of that? There is such a thing, and it's not much spoken about, and I actually don't know why not. You see, the medieval church of the Dark Ages developed this theology that distinguished between the sacred and the secular. So back in the Dark Ages, before the Reformation, this is how they viewed work. Some work was secular and others were sacred. The medieval church believed that God's saving grace was infused to an individual two ways. First was through the sacraments, and the other one was through their own good works. So the Roman church taught this, like, if you needed the, the saving grace of God, then let us baptize you in this church. And when they baptize a the little baby, God's grace is infused into this little child to save them one day. Then this little child has to grow up and receive communion, and when... The priesthood offers them communion. Grace is being infused into that person, saving grace. And God is busy saving that person through baptism and all the other sacraments. Really, there are only two sacraments given to us by God that we have to practice. They, however, have many. But sacraments was a means through which grace was infused into a person, and that person is being saved by it. There was a second way. And that is when that person does good things. When that person, he has good works, and all of his good deeds, grace is being infused into him, and he is being saved by them. This is what the church believed during the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, the medieval church. And because of this, society viewed the duties of the priesthood, the nuns, the monks, in monasteries and cathedrals as Sacred work, as important work, as real work, as eternal work, as work that actually mattered, as God's work. The sacred work of priests, nuns, and monks caused them to somehow be closer to God than the secular work of the housewives, the farmers, the blacksmith, and so forth. So here you had this elevated, these elevated positions where the grace of God is plentiful, where God smiles upon, God values, is close to God, and then, then you have the, se- the secular, which is oftentimes demonized. So therefore, to be a priest or a monk it meant that you had a sort of divine stamp of approval upon your work, something the shoemaker, butler, and the baker could not have. Unfortunately, even though the Reformation took place 500 years ago, or more than 500 years ago, people still, to this day, when it comes to vocation and career paths, many still view there to be this major gulf between the sacred and the secular, between the pulpit and the seats. And before the Reformation uh, before it started, and, and they came into the truth of the Word of God and studied the Scriptures for what it was, the word vocation uh, referred exclusively to a church-related duty, actually. And Martin Luther came on the scene, and, and he recaptured that term. He recaptured the meaning of the word vocation and used it across the board, calling every legitimate Christian role in society vocation. This is huge by the way this is a two-part series I don't want you to miss it because I actually think that this will be a, a major game changer for you no matter what your role is father mother grandmother employer employee a job a career it doesn't matter what you are student this will be a game changer for you because you will learn how to glorify God in what you do every day not to be dreaded not menial but sacred. And so Martin Luther came and he recaptured the word vocation and he changed the meaning and he used it across the board, calling every legitimate Christian role in society, legitimate, not prostitution and so forth, but legitimate Christian role in society, vocation. The farmer was now seen as having a vocation, calling. The position of wife was now a vocation, brand new to their thought life. The position of mom, vocation, brand new thought. The teacher, the shoemaker, etc. now a vocation. Luther, as a matter of fact, elevated that was viewed as unimportant and secular to be equal to what was divine and sacred. Now everybody was part of the priesthood. Because the Bible says, for ye are now priesthood of God. Please turn that back off. Something just went on. Thank you. So Luther elevated that view. In other words, secular jobs that used to be viewed as insignificant and inconsequential to God now was viewed as a calling from God. This wasn't because Luther was trying to be a jerk since they excommunicated him. He wasn't trying to trivialize anything or he wasn't taking vengeance upon the Roman church that excommunicated him to Luther. The shoemaker's work was just as valuable as the priest and the monk's work, and here is why. Follow very, very closely because I think this is extremely powerful. It will change. It will change how you view the role that you have today. Here's why to him, the shoemaker's work was just as valuable, equal before God as was the priest and the Pope. Luther realized from scripture that justification was by faith alone. You are made right before God because of your faith in Jesus Christ, not because of what you did with your life. This is huge. The implications of this revelation was staggering. It was earth-shaking and shattering because the implication of this was that nobody could be right with God by what they did. You couldn't be right with God because you were a priest. You couldn't be right with God because you were a nun or a monk or because you lived there or because you lived somewhere else, up in a mountain, humming all day long. That did not make you right with God. One can only be right with God one way, and that is through faith. Romans 1, 17 is what Luther read after he went through a tremendous amount of torment. Because if you haven't watched the movie Luther, you've got to watch that movie. And you'll see how he went through this torment of guilt. Because he knew that he wasn't right with God for being a priest or a monk or for knowing a lot, or for doing a lot of good. There was only one way to be justified or made right before God, and it says it right there in Romans chapter 17. This is the chapter he was teaching on when this revelation came to him and when that was sparked in him and he realized how to be made right with God. Everything else changed. The Reformation was sparked, and the implications of the Reformation changed the whole entire way the world functioned. Everything came from it. Governments, the way we run them, capitalism, everything changed. Work ethic, the way people related to one another, everything changed. This one verse right here pulled humanity out of the dark ages. And here it is, Romans chapter 117b, but the righteous one will live by faith. Or you might say, other versions say, you are just, the just shall live by faith. Just before God, why? Because of your faith in Christ Jesus, nothing more, nothing less. All that now mattered to Him was justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for God's glory alone. So Luther's redefinition of the concept of work placed all legitimate vocations on a level, on level playing field with even the priesthood because suddenly your vocation no longer had an impact in your faith in Christ. Because of this, the believers saw that any and every legitimate work done in faith before God, before the audience of one, was an opportunity to reflect their Creator and an opportunity to love their neighbor. Both those happen when you go to work in the day, whether you're a shoemaker or whether you're a blacksmith or whether you are a mom or a grandma. When you go about what you do before God, you are creating something and so reflecting your creator, God, and it is for someone else's benefit and so loving your own family and those closest to you. This was God's chosen way of doing things, and Luther saw it and started preaching it. Folks, if you look at the amount of businesses today That are in search of help, and you compare it to the amount of people today unwilling to work because they no longer have to, so we realize how important the Reformation still is to this day. If you look at people who are killing themselves in their jobs, working so hard, when you see people hating their life because of their work, you realize how important the Reformation is today. So because of this, the believers saw that any and every legitimate work done in faith was an opportunity to reflect their Creator God and an opportunity to love their neighbor at the same time Because now suddenly, during the Reformation, this is what Luther was preaching. This is what Calvin was preaching. That behind the farmer, there is God actively providing food to an entire world, all society and all communities. You see, God could have dropped manna on your front porch every morning if he wanted to. But that's not his chosen way of doing it. He did that in the desert for the Israelites. But God's chosen way is now to stand behind this farmer and, and so provide food for society, to stand behind the employer. There is God providing an income for the employees to care for their families and loved ones, to stand behind the blacksmith. There is God providing tools for farmers and business owners, etc., to effectively and efficiently do their work. There is God behind the stay-at-home mom, effectively raising and training and preparing young children to serve God and to one day raise their own families. There is God standing behind the blacksmith, the baker, the banker, every single person that is providing either a product or a service, There is God providing with His common grace for all of humanity, both saved and unsaved alike. So what you did, the role you played, was now a calling from God. That is now a vocation and was placed equal with every other vocation in the world, including the priesthood, because we are only right before God. How? Through what we do? where we live? No, faith in Christ. His work, not ours. The work of the cross, not the work of your hands. So, priests now, all of your good deeds, the monks, all of your humming and leaving things out of the world and not really doing anything, that's doesn't add up to anything before god what adds up before god is the fact that you actually humble yourself before god and say doesn't matter what i do it's like filthy rags before god if i put my faith in it instead my faith in christ is what matters and from now on because i have been justified i want to take this vocation this sacred position God has given me as a mom, the sacred vocation that God has given me as a grandma, the sacred vocation that God has given me as a baker or as, as a butler, and serve God with it because of what He's done for me. So I don't serve my way to justification. I serve my way from being justified. You see? This is now a requirement that God has placed upon us how we ought to respond to what we call jobs or careers. Oh, Jacques, it's not in the Bible. (laughs) Suddenly, what what used to seem like a menial day, and what seemed to be like a day-to-day job with people, where they dreaded their jobs, it now became a calling through which they were able to serve their King Jesus. This job that they could when they go to work in the morning to plow the fields or to bake the cakes or to work with steel, now it was a means through which they could serve their king and provide for their own, through which they can love their neighbors by selling what they've made because it was now a gift, and a, not a gift, it was a blessing to those who purchased it because now they could use it to do things with it and ultimately it was to glorify God with so the impact of the Reformation was incalculable. People st- now, we don't know this history, but this history is, is written down. It's there. I mean, the sermons are there. The books are there. Um, we know exactly what these men preached. And we know that Calvin went to the factories, and he started preaching to the factories. And he preached to the watchmakers in Geneva, Switzerland. And today, to this day, we have Swiss watches. I mean, the stakes that those men drove into the ground went so deep. so Because from the Reformation, there came this work ethic amongst all those branches of the Reformation in the different nations. Remember now, we had them in France and Paris. We have the Huguenots. We had them all across Europe. And then when the Church of England became the state church and now the king was in charge of the church and the state ran the church. The separatists or the reformers, let me say it that way, the reformers, the Protestants who protested Romanism at the time said, we're out. We are not going to be run by politicians. We're going to be run by King Jesus. So they separated themselves from the church then there was a second group they said well you know what we believe this is the church of God it's never been perfect and God wants to purify this church from within therefore we will have to stay there and they were called the Puritans they believed the same thing they were Protestants but they wanted to purify the church from within or allow God to do it by them staying so we have the separatists and we have the Puritans Then we have what we know as the Huguenots in in France. We had the Quakers. And all those people eventually decided they're going to look for a new world where the state is separated from the church. And there will be a separation where, where the state will no longer determine what religion is going to do and which religion you are going to choose and be, and ser- which God you're going to serve. So, they came here, separatists, the Puritans, the Quakers, the Huguenots, and here we are. We stand on their shoulders, right? Guess what? What is America known for? Work ethic. Work ethic. Point out another nation that has this work o- that had the work ethic. <laughs> that. that that has the work ethic we used to have <laughs> in this nation. Yeah, where did that work ethic come from? Absolutely, you can ask any honest historian. Honest, not a revisionist, an honest historian. It came from the Reformers, the Protestants. Why? Because of the theology of work. And so they saw, whatever role they filled, mom, housewife, wife, excuse me, grandmother, baker, butler, candlestick maker, I don't know, (laughs) calling from God. You live to serve your king where you are. You live to provide for your family with what you have, with your lot. You live to serve your neighbors and to glorify God with the life that you have been given. So the impact of the Reformation was incalculable people started finding dignity and significance in their jobs wow I have a vocation I have a calling I'm a truck driver wow they started working as if they were working for God himself wherever they were The Reformers started preaching the idea that God is Lord over every part of our lives. Every part of your life, He is King. He is Lord. He is God. He is sovereign. He is supreme. Every part of your life. Only in modern times now do we have Sunday Christians or once a month Sunday Christians (laughs) or never Sunday Christians, TV Christians, any kind of Christian you want, We now have them, but that wasn't the case back then. The reformers started preaching that God is the Lord over every part of our lives, and that our roles as husbands, wives, parents, friends, and workers are all divine callings from God. And every person who had a role to play now had a vocation. Even the slave. Even the slave. And this doctrine sprang from texts like this. Let's watch. Let's read through Colossians chapter three, verse twenty-two, through twenty-four. Colossians chapter three. 22 through 40, 24, it says, slaves, who? Obey. Slaves, do what? Obey your earthly masters in everything. Obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart, reverence for who? Your, your master? No, for the Lord. Why do you have to obey your master in all sincerity? because you reverence God in the position you have. 23, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. He went all the way down to the worst possible conceivable position, slave. And he says, now, okay, everybody plus you, all the way from the top to the bottom, everybody work to the Lord with whatever you're doing, work sincerely in front of your masters as to the Lord let's read verse 23 again whatever you do work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord not for human masters since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward what the way you do your job you get rewarded from God for it yeah but I'm a baker Uh uh-huh it's a calling Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Wow. He's speaking to slaves from that position all the way up, and he says, it's Christ you're serving wherever you are. Now do it with a sincere heart. We have completely lost, completely lost biblical theology on work. We don't have it anymore. We need it. Because most of our lives are spent in that role. We've actually thrown roles away. Right now, being pregnant is a disease. And having children is a burden. and Staying at home is frowned upon. Let me repeat that. If the wife stays at home, that's frowned upon. Now, it is frowned upon if the husband cannot cannot care for his family. We'll see that now. So, it's very clear as to the dimensions of work in the New Testament. So, let's look at five biblical principles regarding work. Biblical work. Or biblical principles regarding work. Excuse me. Number one. uh, How is work in Scripture established? How is work in Scriptures established? Well, God Himself establishes the pattern of work because God Himself was the very first worker in the Scriptures. Remember, we are not only made in His image and His likeness, but also made to reflect His ways and His character. The moment you create something, because God is the creator of all, and He worked six days, and then on the seventh day He rested from His work because He he saw that it was good, and the moment you create something, whether it be a product or service, a legitimate product or a service, or a profit, you have imitated a success and successfully reflected your Creator God. Let me just say that again because um, next week what we'll do is we'll talk about um, in what ways can we recognize or is it possible for us to recognize in which ways have we made work an idol and in which ways have we started worshiping work instead of worshiping God with our work, right? And so we're going to dive in deeper next week to understand, put our fingers on, if this is you, you have made, an, you have made that an idol. Okay, so we're going to talk, talk about that. And then we're going to talk about, well, then how can I glorify God in my truck driving? How can I glorify God in my cake baking? How can I glorify God as a mom? All right, so that's next week. But know this, that God is the first worker. He's the first one that worked in the Bible, and He showed us how to work because He needs for us not just to bear His image, but also to reflect His ways and His character. And the moment you create something, whether it be a legitimate profit, a legitimate service, or a legitimate product, you have initiated or you have immediately successfully reflected your Creator God. And next week, we're gonna, I'm going to show you exactly how that works. God worked six days, as we know, and then He Himself saw that it was good. How many of you Come, at the end, come to the end of a day sometimes and you really knock that ball right out of the park. And you're like, it was good. Let me flip through the channels, put my feet up, have a cup of coffee. I'm, I'm, I'm no longer doing coffee late at night. But anyway, back in the day, <laughs> Andre got me off of coffee. So then, you know, you, you go like, okay, well done, Jacques. I looked at my work and I saw that it was good and I can rest and I sleep well. Well, God showed us that that's how it works. Now people want to just rest and let the government do the rest. Exodus 20, verse 9 through 10 says, For six days you shall labor and do all your work. For six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath, and of the Lord your God, Sabbath of the Lord your God, on it you shall not do any work. So the walkaway point here, number one, is that God introduced the concept of work, Then he drew boundaries around it by introducing the Sabbath. Okay, number two. Work is what we were made for. You were made for work. You actually flourish when you work the Bible way. You are burnt out and broken when you work unscripturally. You do things for all the wrong reasons. You have the wrong attitude toward it. You do it for more than you should, etc., etc. Doing useless work is the first way of breaking somebody down. Back in the concentration camps, they used to break a person's spirit by making them pick up rocks all day long, a whole pile of rocks, and make them move those rocks. And then, when they're done moving them, they have to move them back and move them and move day after day. And that's how they would break a person because it would cause them to engage in purposeless work. But we'll talk more about that in the future. We, however, were made for purposeful work. Human beings were made to worship God, but not just to worship God, we were also made to what? Serve God. (laughs) Yes, we were made to serve God. Not in our minds. (laughs) Actually serve God. How do you actually serve God? By jumping in and rolling up your sleeves with everything that's in front of you and that does not exclude the church. Humans were made to tend and to keep to worship and, and to work, to serve. Humans were made to both glorify God and to subdue the earth, both of those. This is our purpose as humans. And Without work, we lack purpose, we lack significance, we lack fulfillment. Why do you think, as work is being demonized and trivialized, psychologists and psychiatrists are getting more and more work than what they've ever had. Suicide rates are up, broken families are up. It's not, you know, it's a strange thing. I'm always wondering about what Marx suggested. Oh no, we should, uh, workers unite. Workers unite, we should basically rid the world of the system where you have to work for a living. Instead, we should be a healthy society where we go fishing with our families every day and we sit and we read a book and then we, uh, we do all these wonderful things. There's no morality. We fornicate at nights. We do whatever we want. That is the world that they pictured. And you can go study it yourself. I mean, it's, it's crazy that people are buying into that world today because the, the question is, who wrote those books? Who printed them? Who actually made the fishing rods? Like, how are we going to, tra- on whose roads and with whose cars are we going to travel to the actual lake to fish? I mean, literally, I don't understand how people are still buying into that very brain dead ideology. But it's sweeping our nation and our generation. Taken away God's image by you choosing whatever agenda you want. You see, God made them male and female in His image did He make them male and female. No, we're going to distort that one. And then what we're going to do is we're going to completely destroy people's significance and purpose by doing what? Oh, we'll just support them. They'll do nothing but give themselves to pleasure. They will be amused. We will amuse them all day long. Do you realize that anything with an A in front of it, makes it null and void, like a theist versus an atheist. Being moral versus being amoral, having no morals. Musing, thinking, contemplating, thinking, you know, musing versus amusement. And people are raising their kids to be amused, no think, not, not to be thinkers, not to be creative in figuring out what they can do with the next five years of their lives. <laughs> no, we are training our kids to not be thinkers by constant amusement. So, this is the goal of Satan— He wants to take all of this away from you. How? By trivializing and demonizing work. Our walk-away point here is that to work is an integral part of what it means to be human. It's an integral part of what it means to be human. You do not find find retirement in the Bible. You don't find early retirement anywhere, (laughs) for sure. And I'm not saying that if God gave you this place, That you're out of his will. I am not saying that. But what I am saying is the philosophy of retirement is I'm going to now go into an area of my life where I do nothing. That is not not God. You can transition out of having a full time job into being a full time mom, uh, husband, wife, grandmother, great grandmother. Those are all callings of God. You have a calling. So throw away the word retirement and start articulating the position that God has placed you in because there are responsibilities there that you have before God. It's a calling. Are you all with me today? Does this mean anything to anyone? Because to me, it's huge in every possible way. I mean, if you're a greeter, for heaven's sakes if you if you vacuuming everything is a calling from god we do it before god not for men. so the first we saw is that work was established and and, and the and the model of work was established by god himself he was the first worker secondly we see that work is something that we were made for and thirdly we find that work is a blessing it's not a curse it's a blessing in the bible you see, when God made man, He made him, he, he gave him responsibilities. That's the first thing He did. He gave Adam responsibilities in the garden and told him to keep the garden. And then later, He told him to subdue the earth. I mean, He had, he had a to-do list as long as both your arms. He had responsibilities. Keep, tend, and then subdue. Come on. Yeah, let's subdue. <laughs> Fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the animals, everything. Wow. God delegated the work of tending and keeping and subduing the earth to Adam, and this was before sin came in. So no, work is not because of sin. It was before sin. If work was because of sin, then why did God work? Six days. Man's first relationship with God was a working relationship. You see, Paul, that was big. You see, Paul regards work so basic to a person's life that He even says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone does not, is not willing to work, I'm not saying if anyone does not work, if anyone is not willing to work, because some are disabled, some don't have opportunity, you know, the, the, the list goes on as to legitimate reasons as to why working is not there, but if anyone is not willing, willing, can everybody say willing? Willing, willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Second Thessalonians 3.10. So because of sin, a curse came upon not work but upon the earth which made work difficult where the earth used to be an environment of perfect a perfect environment conducive to work after the fall when sin came in the curse that fell on the earth now resists our work this is why work is hard this is why we call it labor it's laborious it's tough it's difficult the farmer now has to fight all the elements, whether it be floods. He has this whole entire crop. Could, he could have an entire crop failure if the flood comes in. He could have a crop failure if, it, if the hail comes. He could have a crop failure you know, because of pests or because of drought or because of weeds. Or he could have a crop failure because all these workers walked away and left him. Yeah, so the list of possibilities of crop failure is never-ending. The farmer now has to labor against all of the odds because of the curse that's now upon the earth. He has to protect himself from wild animals. (laughs) Uh, that That was never the case. So you might say, well, Jacques, I'm a businessman. I don't deal with crops and I don't deal with pests and hail and flood and everything, the elements as farmers do. Yes, but... You do employ fallen, broken people who are unreliable, people who lie, cheat, steal, cut corners, bring strife into the office. You deal with all of that. And that's because of the fall. That's because of sin. And now you work up against this environment that used to be conducive that no longer is. On top of that, you have customers (laughs) who are never happy, selfish, narcissists who refuse to pay you on time or pay you at all. But what does that mean for work itself? You see, our walk-away point here is that work is a blessing, not a curse. The earth has been cursed, however, work is still a blessing from God, and we've got to see it as such. Thank you, God, for this wonderful country you have placed us in where there's so much opportunity so much blessing all around us so we see that number one god established the pattern of work he was the first worker number two we see that work is what we were made for as humans and we see number three that work is a blessing not a curse it's good for you you need to thank god for the opportunity and for the ability to work and number four God offers man joy in his work. God offers man joy in his work. Ecclesiastes 2.24-25 says this. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. To find satisfaction in their own toil. To find satisfaction in the job you have. Isn't it just so refreshing to find somebody who loves serving in this restaurant. Isn't it wonderful to find somebody who finds pride in what they do as they work? They produce a product and they're excited about this product they're producing and you go like, I don't know how that person is excited about that product because uh, I'm not interested in the product. You know? But somebody's, somebody's excited about their business, somebody's excited about their product, somebody's excited about the profits that they're gonna make at the end of the year because it's all legitimate. It's wonderful to find a person like that. <laughs> and chances are, if you go to Delhi for you, <laughs> you're going to find people working there that are like that. <laughs> Some people just, you, they even dress up just to go to work. But then, oh God, the rest of the, oh jeez. The rest of what you see out there is just straight-up embarrassing, isn't it? Straight-up embarrassing. The way people roll out of bed and fall into work, you know that they don't view it as a blessing. So Ecclesiastes 2.24 shows us that God offers man joy in his work. He says, A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own work. This too, finding satisfaction in your work, this too, watch it, I see, he says, is from the hand of God. Finding, being satisfied, having the ability to be satisfied in the job that you have, this is from the hand of God. For without Him, who can eat or find enjoyment. This is why you will find people with the job you would love to have you find them hating that job. You go like, how is it that you hate that job? I'd love to have your job, Bill Gates. Well, I don't even think he has a job, does he? There are some people, I'm looking, I'm like, seriously? You're up in your corner office on the 99th floor playing golf and you hate your job. (laughs) Yes, you know why? Because enjoying your toil, your work enjoy, is from the hand of God. And when He withholds it from you, it doesn't matter what your salary is or how little you have to do for all that money. You can't enjoy it. But you will find this person, lady I know that walks in here once a day. She, uh, she cleans the whole building except this part. <laughs> and yep, she loves her job. Like, how does she love her job? It's from the hand of God from the hand of God. I want to read it to you again because I think it sits so, you can't swallow that, right? It's like a big old corner of the cob sitting sideways in your esophagus. <laughs> it's like, I can't, I can't enjoy this. It's impossible. I can't enjoy my job. Yeah, all things are impossible for us, but then all things are possible for him. It says a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. Don't live your life hating what you do. He says this too, I see, is from the hand of God. Number 5, the final one. Workers should be able to enjoy the fruits of their labor. Workers should be able to enjoy the fruits of their labor. Oh, he shouldn't have you shouldn't have a yacht. Why not? Now, everything everything is wrong until everybody's as poor as I am. <laughs> so everybody has to stop working in order to become as poor as you are, because that's how you got poor, and then (laughs) life will be be equitable. That's what equality means. Equality means everybody becomes as poor as the poorest person, with the exception of the politicians. So number five, workers should be able to enjoy the fruit of their own labor. Just as God delights in His creative work, because He created six days, and He looked and He says it's good. And then he rested. He saw it was good. And then he rested. And so he commands you to enjoy the fruits of your labor as you rest from your work that was good, if it was good. So look at Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 19. It says, moreover then, when God gives somebody wealth and possessions, now we, now this verse is so jam-packed with truth that is contrary to today's culture. It says, moreover, when who gives somebody wealth and possessions? Oh, okay. So when somebody has wealth and possessions, did Satan give it to them? What if they, in your eyes, are Dr. Evil? Did Satan give it to them? Moreover, when God gives somebody wealth and when God gives somebody possessions and the ability to enjoy them, because many people have it but can't enjoy it, okay? Again, not only does He give you the ability to enjoy your job, but now He gives them the ability to enjoy their possessions and the wealth that they have made. It says, Moreover, when God gives somebody wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot, to accept their lot and be happy in their work, their toil. This is a gift from God. Wow. Wow. We have been trained to do the exact and believe the exact opposite of what this verse is telling us is true. You see, look at what this verse is saying. God gives wealth, God gives possessions. The Bible also does say that He gives it to the diligent hand, doesn't it? The diligent hand shall make one rich. But the slack hand will give you the opposite, poverty. That's God's chosen way through which possessions and wealth come if it's legitimate. God gives wealth. God gives possessions. This verse says that God gives the ability to enjoy the wealth and the possessions you have that He brought to you because your hand was diligent. God gives the ability to accept a person's lot. God gives that person the ability to accept what they do, where they at. God gives the ability to be happy in your toil. You can be happy with the job you have or change it. But at least be happy. Because in this day and age, in this life, we are able to do that. And finally, he says, all these abilities to gather wealth and possessions, to enjoy and accept your lot, to love your work, all the abilities to do these things are gifts from the hand of God also. So, folks, the Bible has so much to say about work. It is so clear in scriptures, and we will delve deep into it next week. How do I know that I have made work an idol and that I'm worshiping my career instead of God? How can I worship God with my work? Instead, how can I therefore glorify God with what I do, what I have, and where I'm at? That's next week. I hope you got something out of the Word today. Amen. Amen.